So um, a week ago today, there was a 5.1 Richter earthquake in San Jose. Anybody feel that? Anybody around? I don't know about you, that was pretty eerie for me. I've, been, I, I've, only, I've only been able to feel a few earthquakes in my life, and every time it's like my little, uh, uh, you know when a, a cat is like on the fritz? It runs around and it's like, yeah, that's the feeling for me. Um, yeah, I was, I was in Scotts Valley, just north of, of um, Santa Cruz at a retreat center. Been silent for a couple of days and I was a retreat man- manager on this retreat and we're just, I'm literally like, 40 of us are just sitting down onto our cushions for meditation and here comes the and I'm like and my instinct of course I'm going to get to the door we're on the second floor I'm thinking oh I probably need to get these people out of here I'm waiting to see is this intense enough that I need to get people out of here I get to the door I I open it and I pause in the threshold and it's at that moment I realized that we're still enough. We're, we're like, we're going to be safe. And I turn back and I look at this hall full of meditators, right? And the eyes are wide, all looking. They're like, since I'm the retreat manager, they're like looking to me for the cue about, are we about to like jet out of here? We were all speculating, right? And then I closed the door and I walked back in and I sat down on my cushion and we sat. Gosh. It was wild to hold those two things in such close contrast, that sort of friction between the two of like that, that stimulation and speculation and then the stillness and silence of meditation especially being so sensitive after having been doing it for a few days. The next day, one of the, one of the meditators, one of the yogis, left me, a, left me a note and asked, oh, where was the epicenter? I thought, oh, maybe she had family or something. It would be calming for her to know. So I went on, I went on the internet. <laughs> Only remarkable because it was meditation retreat. And um, that's when this occurred to me. I thought, I thought any given story, like any given front page, take any, any one article, we could pick one, right? And it's got like, I don't know, one two new facts of some thread that we've been following, and then a thousand words of speculation about, about those one or two facts. And it occurred to me like how much of our life is lived in that thousand words of speculation versus like what's here. These, these like basic building, lo- building blocks of our experience. 
And in the, in the practice of zazen, in the practice of meditation, we keep coming back just over and over. Breath, body, feelings, thoughts, wanting, not wanting. So I'm gonna do something a little different tonight. Um, there's a teacher that really inspires me named Crystal Johnson. Is anyone aware of Crystal Johnson? East Bay Meditation Center? She rocks, in my opinion. And I was, uh, I was in a training with her a couple of years back and she, she said this one thing that really stuck with me. So I consider her kind of a, one of these master facilitators. She said, I don't want to perform teaching. I don't want to perform teaching, I want to connect with people. Whoa, <laughs> I've had to sit with that for years, right? And I'm like, I want to be, I want to be that kind of, I want to be that kind of person. And so I want to try something a little different with this talk. Um, one of my other teachers is also encouraging me to not prepare as much. I don't know if you ever have a conversation with someone where you're like, oh, you, you, you rehearsed this. <laughs> um, Anyway, so I'm gonna to try to take him up on that. And what I wanna do, as we, as we keep in mind this theme of like how complicated, spun out, complexified our life, our mental life can be compared to the simplicity and coherence of direct experience. As we, as we think about that theme together and like all the majestic philosophies and really intense opinions that we hold based on our speculations and our, and our thinking. And what a refuge meditation can be. First thing I wanna do actually is, I'm not gonna answer them at the moment or I might not answer them directly, but I wonder along these lines it would be cool if you can, if anyone, like popcorn style, can pop out like a question they have about this. Or like three people can throw out their questions. Five people can throw out their questions and let's just see what's in the room and then let's move from there. Again, we're gonna need that courageous first person. Any question related to this idea of uh, the simplicity of experience, how we complexify it, and then how we return to, return to coherence through meditation practice. I'm basically gonna be talking about that in a handful of different ways. One of the other ways I thought about talking about this that may introduce it, um, the author Mark Twain was, um, he's attributed this quote that if you, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And there's a, there's a way that like, in, in, his, in this example attributed to him, like if you, if you lie, you've got all this extra stuff you have to carry around in your mind. But there's also like, there's the inner tension of needing to do that and organize your life in a way that we sort of divide ourselves or something deep within us goes at cross purposes, right? So sort of the, the spectrum I wanna move along in our conversation tonight is like the, the way that our life gets complexified, 
like the, like the headline versus all the speculation. And that we kind of live in an environment that does that. And then we have this practice of coming back to simplicity. And through doing that, there's a way that, that our mind can temporarily simplify and what seemed like intractable problems can actually dissolve. So that's, that's kind of the territory I'm thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try at this. Yeah. With our true universal self, our Chico, and that's our simplicity. And then our conscious minds, as we grow and interact with the world, we build up all these uh, attachments, and so we're trying to deconstruct that. Um, would you consider language one of those that takes us away from our Chico? Or nice, nice. Uh, did everyone hear the question? Yeah. Born with the Chico. How did you translate Jiko? True, uni true universal self. And then we have this, this complexity in, in, our, in terms of our thinking, in Pali Papancha, that we then, it cultivates our attachments, and then the rest of the question was like... Um, so we, yeah, we said Zazen to deconstruct those attachments, uh, to bring us back to that simplicity. Yeah, to, to, allow the, to allow those attachments and complexities to deconstruct themselves just by virtue of our awareness. And then language is one of these things that we also learned and use our brains to yeah. think. Yeah, is language one of these? That was the question. Great, great. Language definitely plays its part, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know if I'm understanding exactly, but I, the first thing I thought was, uh, I don't know, as thinking about as I was a kid, like be able to kind of enjoy every moment. Yeah. And I feel there is like less social construct of like what you're doing and why you're doing it. Nice. And you kind of like feel, you know, yourself. Mm -hmm. Having knowledge of what others are beside you. Right. You're exploring. And like, I feel like later, you know, with the, I don't know, the social construct that's been putting on you based on whatever environment you have been to. Nice. Uh, you kind of, you know, expand your knowledge and at the same time everything becomes more complex and like hard to deal with nice. at a certain point and you might struggle. But if you, in the meditation, I feel like you can get rid of all of that layers mm -hmm. and feel yourself from within and uh, like get away from all the other outsider thoughts that maybe other people have put on you through the years. Nice. Two different interactions. Nice, well said. So there, there was. Um, there's a way of both like inner and outer simplifying that happens through the practice of meditation, like the influence of emotion, the influence of how we understand others. Yeah, maybe one more comment, and then we'll we'll uh, get into it. So uh, one thought I had is, uh, so in my career, and I think probably a lot of other people's. A lot of your job is to speculate on possible things and prepare for them. Nice. Guess the right one and there's some payoff associated with it. Sure. So, you know, there's there's that type of speculation and then there's also like all the random speculation about everything that doesn't matter that's like more obvious. Yeah. Like you think about, is this going to happen or is this going to happen, but really it's in your head. And that's like non-constructive speculation. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, um, like my sense at least is that you get 
uh, it becomes habitual to speculate, especially if your career requires it of you. Like, you, you do it, and because there's like a positive reward at the end of it, you, you do that. I've noticed at least that that makes it easier to do that in a lot of areas where it's not required. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, how do you think about like applying that where it's skillful and not applying it where it's not? Nice. Nice. Where to um, where to apply fruitful speculation and where to where to not have speculation leak in when it's not so helpful after having been conditioned by your work. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for thank you for bringing a little bit of a little bit in. Uh, this way, I get to know what we're up to. So in terms of complexity and simplicity, I came across this, um, I came across this image recently that some researchers were using to talk about um, uh, some, some of the functions of the brain and how the, how, the brain can, how the brain can move from complexity to simplicity and back and forth. And they used this image of something called a Pythagoras tree. I don't know if anyone's seen this before. It's really cool. And uh, in short, it looks like, <laughs> I thought it looks like a big piece of broccoli. Um, <laughs> you've got like the, the broccoli stalk at the bottom and then it sort of like curves out like this. And, um, anyway, they, it's made by, at the bottom it's just like one square. You build it starting with one square, this one building block. And then on the top, like, like this, they're um, the base of two more squares at diagonal, so one here and one here. Uh, so that three squares come together and make a right angle, make a triangle. Square, square, square. And then you keep doing that on top of that square, and on top of that square, and that one. And it kind of like, it takes more and more pieces, and the pieces get finer and finer, and they curl in on themselves and create this really cool looking fractal. And these researchers were using it to talk about how the mind uses this predictive capacity to generate and use all of this like, all of these little bits of information, some of them true and some of them totally not to construct our experience. And we, we can't help but, but uh, create these shapes out of the information we have. So I was thinking of the, like the bush of the broccoli, the top of the, top of the broccoli, or like this, uh, this, part of the, this part of the figure that's all these tiny little squares wrapped in on itself as one of the, one of the ways to think about the ways we abstract. Or we complexify our experience with our thinking. And then as we get closer to the root, closer to the center, closer to the stalk, it's like fewer and fewer pieces, fewer and fewer pieces. Oh, it's just this. It's just this. It's just this body. Just the breathing, just the emotions. And what they, what they were contending is that um, as meditation deepens, it's fewer and fewer building blocks. So anything that takes, anything that takes um, complex, deep processing starts to fall off. So our stories start to fall away. Our sense of self starts to thin out. Concepts of time get wobbly. And this maps pretty closely onto meditative experience for, for um, at least for these researchers. I think something important to bring up, it's not like, 
It's not like complexity, bad. Simplicity, good, right? But having some fluidity to move between the two. And the, if we're talking about attachments, the sort of releasing power of returning to simplicity for a time and then letting your intellect blossom again, use it in your work or your relationships, conversation, and then returning, simplicity, complexity, simplicity. This creates kind of like a process of purification that goes on. In that, it can be insightful because things we thought were definitely true and would always be there start to disappear, at least temporarily, and then come back. Like even any markers that show me that I am me. So just having been on this meditation retreat, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up tonight is like, I'm finding myself really in this territory of simplicity and complexity, like thrown back into San Francisco, right? I was at, I was at my desk for an hour before the controversies began. And uh, yeah, I could feel the body ramping back up and the mind ramping back up and the stories like coming back. And I thought, oh, here it is, my familiar life. Good to see you again. And you know, having done having done that over and over again, it's like, oh, it, I'm still like, I'm still sad about it, but I know it's gonna it's gonna be okay. The deconstructing process, the simplifying process, the trajectory of that, can sometimes be experienced as a kind of grieving, because we, as we say, as a, as our mind starts to simplify, of course there are pleasant pleasant aspects to this, but there are also like deep, below conscious level attachments to some of these things. And as they start to dismantle, it, it can really hurt. It can really hurt. Um, I think Chogam Trungpa is attributed with saying, uh, if, you, if you haven't started spiritual practice, don't. It's like meditation master, right? If you haven't started, don't, because it will ask everything of you. Should I have that on the door? <laughs> the door of Zen Center. Coming at this from another angle, so, uh, talking about this theme of letting go and releasing as we simplify, I was thinking about it in terms of, um, it came to me in sort of a kind of passionate, vivid image of like burning the ships of one's former, former life. And when that occurred to me, I'm, I wrote this down. I burned the ships of my former life when there came a time, like that time she said she would leave and meant it, 
and the hope in your gut sinks. Or I burned the ships of my former life when he said he, would be, he wouldn't be near anymore. But nonetheless, I don't hear his socked foot footsteps. Or I burn the ships of my former life like that morning you wake up ill with the understanding that all that is dear to me will change. Or you burn the ships of your former life when you gather around her for the last hospital bed, silent, and your uncle arrives last as every Christmas. And you take your cousin's young hand in your tender right and we all say goodbye. You burn the ships of your former life. When I knew I needed to eat, but I realized that more money couldn't feed my heart. And that I needed community, but it seemed too well how power and status wouldn't shield me from loss. That pleasure was plenty and then it wasn't. And when I'd extracted all I could from all of my regrets, every half ounce of wisdom, and finally forgave myself. I burned the ships of my former life and took refuge in awareness and simplicity and coherence and giving up. Yeah, it's like this. It's like this evocative process of letting go that meditation asks, or a path of meditation asks. You might not hear about it when you sign up for the four-week introduction, but it's like, there are these moments that, that are like watershed. You realize that something has shifted and you can't be what you were. It doesn't only happen in meditation, like all of us go through these phases the adolescence, if you ever go back to an old workplace and you're like, wow, I don't, this isn't me anymore. We can't go back, it's like something else burned the ships. I don't know how it happened. And then there's refuge. I had a hard time finding this attribution, but there's apparently something that's called the Rwandan prescription for depression. Sun, drum, dance, community. That rocks. That rocks. And I don't know what those represent for you. Of course, I think of like Barton Springs Pool in Austin and lying, lying around or lying around in the sunshine in the grass or like Tassajara and we do, this, we do this end of the week ceremony. The Buddha's sun shines in everything. And how bright and luminous that is. When I think of Zazen though, I think of the drum as like, it's like our heartbeat in silence. And the dance is when we all 
move into the zendo and do this ceremonial enactment of awakening. And community, when we're in here and we're chanting in one totally discordant voice. So communities like this and something I was sensitive to last week again uh, on this retreat was like the utter sanity of a retreat community. It's like unbelievable. The utter sanity of it. It's like simple. Like we care for one another. We feed one another. We, we get to know one another through silence, not through our abstractions or our controversies, which are, are useful. Those are important ways to get to know one another. But the simplicity, the letting, letting go of all these things that we spin and coming back to the root again and again and feeling so nourished by that, so nourished just by being in simplicity, you know, just, just what's here. There was a uh, there was a retreat in one of the final days, and um, I was aware that she had been having a pretty hard time with the with the whole thing. And I saw her outside one day, and I, you know, I walked I walked kind of casually by. We're still not talking or looking looking in each other's eyes, but I walked by to see what she was doing, and she had a little basket of purple flower petals and acorns and these little pink like hummingbird flower blossoms. And she was laying them out in circles on the ground. She was making a flower mandala. And later when she had, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to invade her space, so later when she was gone, I walked by again and um, I stood there and my mind had been kind of active. I stood there and I looked at this thing. The purple was so vibrant and the colors, or the, uh, the shapes, were just, just so, so well considered. I looked at it and all the muscles in my rib cage relaxed. And my breathing deepened. It was like, oh, everything downshifted. And there was something about the thought that came in that moment was just, the, the coherence of the whole thing. Just everything held together. It was so simple, so well considered, and so beautiful that it had this, it had this effect, right? Yeah. I, think, I think for us, and I speculate about reasons that people come to places like this, I think it's related to my experience with this flower mandala in that for me to, to, to see someone organizing a life of coherence for themselves, to see someone organizing um, simplified life, at least in some measure, puts me in touch with something really nourishing. 
inspiring and connecting. It inspires me to practice more. It uh, figuratively it tucks in, it tucks in some inner insecurity. I don't know what that is. It's like some insecurity gets to go to bed when I see an ordered, ordered life of intention like that. In 2005, there was this, uh, there was this gathering, it was a conference called Mind Life Institute. Still happens. 05, there was a, a Dalai Lama was there and there was this scientist named Wolf Singer. It's a, it's a discussion between folks who study the brain and meditation teachers. And they, um, Wolf Singer, one of these scientists was saying, he was making a speculation about the effect of meditation. And he was saying something to the effect of, in the simplifying process, he proposes that it, it resolves and settles the mind at the level of conscious controversy and resolves and settles subconscious competition. I don't know precisely what he meant by these terms, but I take it to mean our life at the surface, our speculations and headlines and our stories, and then our inner dynamics. As one teacher put it, ending the war within. So, before we take another stretch break, I'd just like to, I'd like to say that I hope it can be so, I hope it can be so that a, what, what grows out of a sangha, what grows out of a community like this one, is, um, it touches into something that's actually bigger than any one of us. It's, uh, it doesn't have to be anything, you know, out of the ordinary. <laughs> but touches into something that's... Um, that can hold all the complexity of our lives. And when it's too much for any one of us, that the rest of us can hold it together. I hope a sangha can be a place of beauty and inspiration and this kind of this kind of inquiry where your your heart just gets to blossom with other people <laughs> <laughs>